So if you try to come by uh, the church office any time in the next couple weeks, I'm going to apologize to you up front because we're all in a bad mood. We are all doing this thing called the Whole30. It's a diet. I know, I know. So it's like it's like no no gluten, which is in everything I like. It's like I am just so jonesing for a grilled cheese sandwich. Ugh. It's uh, no high fructose corn syrup, no added sweeteners and things. No, and it, they they call it a three day detox. That's exactly what it is. Because I'm like, I'm like, I was talking to Donald, my GC leader, last week, and he's all, "Wow, even your texts sound angry." So we're all on it, or almost all of us, except for Sarah McCool, but whatever. You know, we're like all on this thing. We're like dying. We're angry. We're like, because I can't have anything I normally eat. Like all my normal food is all on the stuff I can't eat. I'm just throwing it out there. So if, if you do go to the, the newcomer dessert party, there'll be plenty because I'm not going to eat any of it. Okay. I'm, I'm really trying to be happy. I'm just. Not, though. Uh, January 31st, we are doing our next gospel class. We haven't done one in a really long time uh, because after since we moved out of the buildings over there, they kind of tore down. We haven't had a space to do it. We made a space upstairs, but it's going to be kind of weird. So uh, if you want to do it, sign up, and then we'll let you know on, on the 31st. We'll kind of guide you up there because we call this the Winchester Mystery Church because it's like there's stairs that go nowhere and hallways that lead to like a door that opens into a cl- nothing. It's, it's really weird. So we're going to kind of help steer you up there. Normally, uh, the gospel class used to be seven weeks long. Now it's eight, and it's eight weeks because we added a week that's about elements, philosophy, and ministry, and we believe the missional church is called to be. And so if you went through it a couple years ago, you could uh, actually watch online that extra class if you wanted to, or if you're so inclined, you go through the entire class. Uh, what it's for is if you want to become a member or know more about Element, uh, you go through this because it's required for membership at Element. Uh, we, we want you to have basic Christian theology, with, which the course covers, and it also tells you what we believe because we'd hate for six or eight months down the line, you saying, Element's my home, and all of a sudden it's like, I didn't know there were a bunch of crazies who believe this. So we put it in there so you know everything we believe. We'll let you ask questions at the end. Uh, it starts with scripture. Uh, we talk about who God is. We talk about creation and sin. We talk about salvation. We talk about talents with, with money as well as the gifts God has given you. Uh, we talk about the church, our church structure. We talk about the missional church. We talk about all kinds of stuff in there. And again, you can ask any questions you want. But that starts on the 31st. So if you'd like to, mark on your calendar. It's going to be during second service. See, so you could just go to that and then show up to this one, unless you're like those weirdos who get up at like 10.50 and come running down here as fast as you can, which is kind of what I would do if I came to this service, but whatever. (sighs) I really want cookies. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, uh, so welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, There's sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room, but... It's the last week of Epiphany. They're only half sheets. Usually you get a whole bunch of stuff about what we're talking about inside as well as the questions. But just because we wanted to give you something for the last week of Epiphany, they're, they're right there. Some questions go a little bit deeper with. With If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, you click on Live and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get those questions. You'll get the verses we go through the day. And there's a lot that I actually don't go through or that, that I don't quote. But there's a lot actually in the message if you want to know more stuff in there. Uh, and there's also some announcements that are on there as well. So 
My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and I like cookies, but I can't have any. Why don't you stay on there reading to God's Word? And we'll get started. This is Isaiah 25, verse 6, and it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in the grace and the goodness of your love and joy, that as you have revealed yourself, we would live in the epiphany of that that the light would go off in our, on our head and we'd be like, yes, this is who you are and our lives will be lived in the light of who you are. You would teach us to live in the revelation of you so that you are glorified in all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so if you still look around the room, you've got to be thinking, right, when does Christmas end an element? Have you guys forgotten to take down your decorations? No, we haven't. Christmas element never ends because we love it. Or this is the third week of Epiphany, so it actually could end today. Wah, wah, that's what you get. Uh, today is kind of our last message coming through 2015. Usually what I like to do is teach expositorily through a book and then do a topic of some sort and kind of bring those things together. But every time I teach expositorily, it goes so long like we did the Sermon on the Mount. I thought initially it would be 24 weeks. It took us the entire year to get through. So basically over the years, I've had all these ideas percolating around in the back of my head. And so we did last week or last year, 2015, was our year of teaching Topically, even though our topics kind of turn out expositorily anyway, because we go through scripture just kind of verse by verse doing it. But that's what it was. So this is kind of the last message coming out of 2015 of teaching topically. We hope you enjoyed it because starting next week, we hit the book of Acts and the next 35 weeks where we spent in the book of Acts. And that's really just the first half of the book of Acts. Sometime later, we will do the second half, but we're going to get right to it. Acts switches from uh, the original uh, apostles and goes kind of over to Paul. That's where we're going to make the switch point. So 35 weeks. I think it's 36. Now. I think I added an extra week, but, you know, that's, that's how we roll. Uh, today, we're going to finish our series of messages on Epiphany, which is essentially what takes place right after Jesus is revealed at Christmas. Uh, the word epiphany in itself means manifestation or revelation, like when you can't figure out how to make something work and you read the instructions ten times, and you're like, what in the world? And all of a sudden, click, you kind of get it, or you watch the YouTube video, and you're like, oh, I understand, and like, that's, that's the epiphany. Like sometimes when a kid grows up and they realize all the sacrifices their parents made for them growing up, like how grounding them, the parents are really grounding themselves to make sure the kid stay grounded, and the kids feel bad about all the garbage they put their parents through, it's like, epiphany maybe it hasn't happened for you we will pray it happens for you one day all right then you'll be like that's right kid whatever uh, in the christian tradition epiphany is how the story of the revelation of god and his love which began to be understood at christmas is then understood by those who lived around jesus and then kind of flows out of that uh, the revelation and epiphany is meant for all people epiphany the church season of it hasn't really caught on in the western church like it does in eastern orthodoxy but it's meant to be this glorious celebration of the meaning of jesus coming and hopefully by going through it we're growing you guys just a little bit in that the church season celebrated as epiphany could have been one week could have been three weeks four weeks uh sometimes they just go through january 5th we're actually going three weeks with it 
And I'm going to show you the two weeks we've hit so far before we hit the third week today, just to give you a little bit of background. Event one that we looked at, John G. was here, and he talked to you about the wise men coming to see Jesus as an infant. And the theme is that there is no boundaries or limit to God's grace and love, and we are called to be heralds of God's grace and love. The whole world, the whole universe, the whole creation is included in that love. Jeffrey Smead tells this story about how a family is driving around at Christmas, and they drive past an Anglican church, and there's a scene in the front of it. That's, you know, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. And the kids goes, what's that? And, it, and the mom goes, well, that's Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. And they go a couple blocks later. There's a Methodist church, and they got, like, the camels and everything. And the, and the kid goes, well, what's that? And, he, and she said, well, that's the wise men. Then they're trying to find Jesus. And he said, they must not be that wise because he's right back there at that other church. <laughs> we always think of the wise men coming to see Jesus' birth, but they didn't. They came after the birth. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It'll tell you they came to the house, not the stable, not the cave, not anything like that. Jesus is probably about two years old when these wise men show up. You have these three mysterious strangers that could have been kings, uh, they could have been sages, they could have been wise men. There might have been three, there might have been 20, there might have been 50. But they come from the east to Bethlehem to visit the newborn Christ child, and they call him a king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, this is probably a little bit of a mystery to Jesus' parents, but we consider this today part of Epiphany and Revelation because the first time foreigners had come and they worshipped Jesus. So we take this as part of Epiphany. Now, they give him, great, uh, give him gifts, and these gifts have great meaning in them. You have gold. Gold represented Jesus' royalty, and it also helped his family when they had to run away to Egypt. Frankincense is an expensive resin that was burned in the temp- temple as a symbol of prayer, which shows Jesus' divinity. They also gave him myrrh. It's also an expensive resin that was used in embalming, and this points towards Jesus' death for us. And I think when you look at it, it's not hard to see why this is epiphany. You have these gifts, they're given with great care, and they point to adoration of the newborn king. And I think God does this all the time in our lives, that that he starts to give us these epiphanies and these revelations of what he's doing. And we wanted you to be like those wise men and understand that, that following and loving and serving Jesus and realize that God has revealed himself. Now, the second event was Jesus at 12 years old at the temple. Uh, That's easy to understand as a focal point of Epiphany because it's the time of Passover. This is the largest Jewish holiday in their nation of Israel's calendar. It remembers back to the Exodus when God brings his people out of slavery into freedom. And the way God did that, part of it was he sent some plagues upon the Egyptians who held God's people in slavery. The last plague of that is when God took all firstborn male children which I I might talk about this someday, how that really, I think, was an act of grace. Uh, But the way your family was spared in that plague was you painted the doorframe of your home with the blood of a lamb. This showed you you were in covenant relationship with God. And so Passover was meant to be about relationship, forgiveness of sins, lambs being slain, and the blood of the lamb covering our lives. So Jesus' parents, they're in town for Passover. After the feast, they head home. They probably left a little bit early. You know, you want to beat the rush hour traffic. It's like you don't want to hit L.A. at 5 p.m. So they're like, let's pack up the donkeys and go. So they take the whole entourage because that's how they roll. Yo, you know, like that, right? Part of the way home, they can't find Jesus. So they decide to go back and look for him. They find him in the temple. He is among the teachers. And it's here that he tells his parents in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, why were you looking for me? It's like, you knew where I was going to be. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And you see a little bit of the revelation of who Jesus has done on his parents, but also the rulers at the temple, that there's something different about this boy. 
For us, we get to look back and see that God in the flesh begins his public teaching for the first time at Passover. At Passover, the time when God took his people out of slavery into freedom, Jesus comes and he begins to teach. This is also the time when he will die. He will die during Passover for all men's sins as that perfect Lamb of God. And this leads people to go to sometimes the third week of Epiphany, and they will do it at Jesus' baptism, where John the baptizer sees Jesus, and he says, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we're not going to go there. We're going to go to a different event three, which is also part of Epiphany. I think it's the most fun, not just because it talks about alcohol, but because it involves Jesus' first miracle. Okay, it's going to reveal who he was. This is where Jesus turns water into wine at this wedding in Cana. So if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 2, and we'll talk about this Revelation Epiphany. But to get there, I feel what I have to do before we get there, whenever we talk about verses like this, is talk about briefly views on alcohol. So by the time I talk about the third event, you're not distracted by the wine and you hear what I'm actually saying. I do this every couple years or so. Now, I'm going to talk about some stuff. If you are not aware, uh, alcohol is a very volatile subject in our culture and in church context. Didn't know if you were aware, but okay. Uh, I used to believe, because of the church context that I became a Christian in, that all alcohol was evil, period. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was an alcoholic, and I've heard that led to his death, although... I was young when he died, and I think he was pretty old, but that just could have been perspective. I don't know. Uh, If he hang around people enough, you will hear stories about how alcohol has destroyed lives. But I will submit to you that it is not the alcohol, but the decisions that people make with the alcohol that destroy lives. And I know you're thinking, hey, this is the guns don't kill people. People kill people argument. Well, yeah, it is, but just go with me here, okay? I have actually taught messages at one point on how alcohol was wrong, all of it. Some of you were there in my less than biblical days. But then I actually read the Bible, and today I repented, and now I drink. (laughs) Uh, I mean, not like, I love you, kind of drinking. And if you do, then you repent, okay? (laughs) Okay. But occasionally, my friends, I I don't drink alone. I have never... uh, drinking alone uh the, the worst thing i would you could do today though is walk out of this place and say aaron says we can get drunk in jesus name that's a church i've been looking for okay that's that is not that is not what i'm saying okay so let me just on the negative side give you some statistics okay a hundred thousand u.s deaths are caused by alcohol consumption each year it is a number three cause of preventable mortality 37 percent of rapes involve alcohol use by the offender Fetal alcohol syndrome is the number one cause of mental retardation in the Western world. Youth who drink alcohol are 50 times more likely to use meth or cocaine than those who never drink alcohol. Traffic crashes are the greatest cause of death for persons age 6 to 33. So if you're past 33, woo, we made it, okay? About 45% of those fatalities are alcohol-related. Alcohol kills six and a half times more youth than all other illicit drugs combined. Now, those, those are staggering, but the truth is we live in a world that is sick, and we don't know how to use anything that God has given that was meant to be good. And so at Element, we want to be about redeeming culture. So you have to look at this through a scriptural lens, not a cultural one. Everything God made is good. It's been given to us as a gift. But food, we turn food into gluttony. Alcohol, we turn into drunkenness and sexuality. We turn into lust and pornography. And money, we turn into arrogance and pride. And work, we turn into our identity. But everything God gives is good. Work was meant to be good. Sexuality is meant to be good. Food is meant to be good. We are told in the scriptures that wine is a gift of God over 200 times. 
Alcohol is used in celebration and worship. It's used in marital intimacy. But in Ephesians 5, it says, don't get drunk with wine. He says, don't lose control. Now, some people will say, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, and I'm free, and I can drink as much as I want whenever I want. Well, no, you can't. No, you can't. And others will say, well, you should never drink. It's a sin, and you can't say that either. Christians are meant to respond with wisdom and temperance. We're not extremists. We live in the truth, even when that truth sometimes is hard. C.S. Lewis once said, heresy is a truth taken too far. Sometimes something so right is taken so far, it becomes wrong. Is it okay to drink? Yes, it's okay. Can we go too far? Yes. Is it a sin to be a drunkard? Yes, it is. Can we say anyone who ever drank alcohol in the history of the world offended God? No, you can't say that. God gives bookends. Don't get drunk. Don't judge those who abstain. Like, do you drink to hide and escape has become your master? If so, then it is sin and you should not drink. But does freedom scare you? So you hide from your freedom because you can't handle it. And you make summary judgments on other people who can handle their freedom. If so, then that is sin as well. There are three positions when it comes to alcohol. There's a prohibitionist, an abstentionist, and a moderationist position. Okay? A prohibitionist position teaches drinking is a sin, and alcohol is wicked no matter whenever it happens. There's a far extreme in this movement that said if Jesus had ever drank wine, he would have ceased to be God. That is a stupid position because it cannot be backed up biblically. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, it says, You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Who makes the wine? It tells you that God makes the wine. Why? To gladden the heart of man. Jesus today makes wine in the section of part of the Revelation and Epiphany that we're going to talk about. Now, Jesus drank, but did he get drunk? No, he didn't get drunk. And if you think, or anyone thinks, alcohol in and of itself is a sin, they have a problem with God. The second position is the moderation, or is the abstentionist position. The abstentionist position sounds much, much more reasonable. Uh, they say, well, it's not a sin, but because of like the statistics and all the horrible things that come along with alcohol, because it's abused, we should just stay away from it. And and that sounds good, at first. Okay, uh, Hosea chapter two, verse eight. God is speaking, and He says, "And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal." What this means is God says, I gave them wine, I gave them food, I gave them money, and they worshipped a false god with it. But the question is, did God abstain from giving them a gift that they would abuse? No, he doesn't. What we have to take a step back and think of, has God given you anything that you have abused? You have a tongue. Have you ever said something you shouldn't have said? You have hands. You ever touched something you shouldn't? You have a mind. Have you ever thought something you shouldn't? You have a mouth. Have you ever eaten something you shouldn't? Our whole staff's like on a diet. You know, money. You ever spent money on things that maybe you shouldn't have? An abstentionist will say, someone can abuse it, so let's just get rid of it. Is there anything on the face of this planet that mankind has not used to sin against God or other people with? No. Even the Bible, people have sinned against other people with. Do we get rid of the Bible? No. One person. No! (laughs) Holy cow, people. No, you don't get rid of the Bible planet are we on? Martin Luther says this, do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? And all the men said, no. I married one. She's so much softer and nicer than me. No. 
This position eventually begins to abstain everything. And a church starts like this. I mean, it may start in a very good place, and they're thinking we've got to do the right thing. But the next thing you know, you're in a suit and tie, and your wife's got a doily on her head, and they set the drum kit on fire, and you read the King James Version, and you hate church because you made too many rules. It's like, what am I going to do with this? Some people speed, so I won't drive. And some people gossip, so I'm not going to speak. And some people are in debt, so I won't spend money. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'll admit, we are about redemption, reclaiming what God always intended, which leads to the third position, which we call the moderationist position, and that's doing it right. Scripture gives liberty to participate in alcohol consumption. It also gives liberty to not participate in it, and that's okay. It is very clear that you, though, never abuse it. Again, Ephesians 5, don't get drunk. Now, we are also to respect our governing authorities, which means if you're under 21, you don't drink, you don't drink and drive, but we are to allow differing, differing opinions on these matters. Romans 14 tells us that. Guys, some of you should not drink, and that's a godly thing, and that's a good thing. There are two types of sins, universal sins for everyone. This would be don't kill, don't murder, don't steal, don't watch reality TV. <laughs> Just because for all time, never changes, all right? But then you have personal issues, matters of conscience where God has given great freedom. It's not right or wrong. It's where does your conscience guide you? And it's okay where that freedom takes you. A Christian who is free should not cause someone who struggles to sin. You don't give a drink to an alcoholic. Those who abstain should not look at those who do with contempt. Like, oh, I drink, so and I'm holy and righteous. Or I do drink, and then I mature and have self-control. Both those attitudes are backwards. The question we must ask is, do we participate in the world in a way that glorifies God? That's the question. The point is always for us to bring glory to God. So are we on the same page? Got it? Okay, 10 of you, we're on the same page. All right. The rest of you, listen to the podcast, you'll hear it again. All right. Uh, so John chapter 2, all right, Epiphany, week 3, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, and, and I could actually stop right there and preach a whole sermon on the third day because all the Bible is full of these third day stories, okay? They're just, they're simply amazing. You, you have Abraham taking Isaac up onto the mountain for the sacrifice. It's a, that's a three days they spend going to that mountain. You have Jonah in the belly of well. You have Jesus, right? You know, death and resurrection, that's a three day story. And here on the third day, I'm not going to spend time on that, but I'm just saying, okay? On the third day, there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples now at this point jesus maybe have five, maybe has five disciples why is he invited some commentators say oh well jesus was invited because you wanted prominent teachers at your wedding you know because so the people be like, oh they're really important they're prominent teachers but jesus here is not prominent jesus has been on the rabbi circuit maybe three to fifty days those five disciples he stole from his cousin john okay so it's it's not like he's very prominent at, at this point i think he's invited because people like to be around him I think Jesus is simply likable. I think we're going to be with him for eternity, and I bet we like him. And if we don't, I think it's us and not him, by the way. Okay? Verse 3, when the wine ran out, you're like, uh-oh, that, that's bad news right there. You go to a party and the beverages run out, that's like a party foul right there. Now, in this context of a wedding, in this culture, it could last for a week. Okay? The celebration can last for a week. Your job as a host is to feed and house and take care of everybody for, your week, for a week. Can you imagine like, people starve themselves and show up to, you know, eat you out of house and home. I've seen the all-you-can-eat buffet, all right? And I've seen people at it. That's, that's what happens at these things. And so, in this context, when you throw a party, you're not supposed to do it unless you can take care of everybody that's there. And when people show up and they don't have to drive home, they drink more than they should and they eat more than they should. It's just how it happens. So, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
Now, I don't know why she's in charge of it, okay? She's, she's probably just one of Jewish women, you know, just cutting right in the middle of everything. <laughs> it's just true, okay? She's been, my, I got a mom, and she's like this. She, she'd, she'd be this woman. We better take care of this. We're going to fix this. Aaron, I didn't volunteer. Like, you know, I got voluntold. That, that, that's growing up with my mom. Anyway, uh, the women's quarters were close to the kitchen, so Right, right there next to it. And Mary, Mary probably is not telling Jesus to do a miracle. What she's probably telling him to do is, hey, you got those five disciples. Get some money out of your wallet and go make a wine run. Get some Martinelli's for the kids, you know, and, and bring it back and, and it'll all be happy. She wants to help these kids. And I think it's funny because Jesus is 30 years old and his mom is still telling him what to do. <laughs> I relate, okay? <laughs> it's like, I don't have to clean my room. I own my own house, mom. <laughs> what do you, what do you, my, my mom calls and says, hey, I'm coming over. I clean up. I really do. I really do. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some people think Jesus is saying, Woman, back off. That's not what he's doing. Woman here is a term of endearment. It's the same wording he uses when he's hanging on the cross and addresses his mom. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So she's like, He's responsible. He'll take care of it. Do whatever he says. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take some to the master of the feast. So they took it. So this is how Jesus is going to start the first miracle of his public ministry, his revelation, his epiphany. In Jesus' culture, what you would do, these were religious containers because you would show up for a meal and you would wash your hands, you'd wash your feet, and between courses, you would wash your hands. This was religious. This is what you were supposed to do as part of your religion. And so Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He takes these religious containers, these religious cisterns, and he fills them with wine, something that was meant to be mundane. He empties the religious containers and fills them with 180 gallons of wine. A lot of us are like, no, no, it's either religious or it's something else. It can't be both. And Jesus is showing you that there should be no difference in our lives between our spiritual and our physical lives. They're meant to come together. We're supposed to live integrated lives. In Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, He, Jesus, was accused of being a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners. He was accused of not caring about religious things. He was accused of being worldly. And people who are very religious usually have problems with Jesus as he revealed himself to be. So they try to clean him up a bit. Oh, no, Jesus never drank. Oh, Jesus didn't eat a whole lot of food. Jesus never got drunk and he wasn't a glutton. He never sinned. But they're always trying to clean him up just a little bit. Now, last year we did this series called Pharisee University. And we talked about how the Pharisees started really in a good spot, like a lot of fundamentalists do. It's like no one loves God, no one takes him seriously, no one follows him. We need to get back to the basics and read the scriptures. And I think we'd all be like, amen, that's a great thing. We should all do that. But then they started making rules about rules about rules, and they forgot that God gave his law to overcome sin through grace, so we have freedom to live the lives that he calls us to. All the rules they started to make took away their freedom that God intended. And Jesus says, no, it's not this thing over here or this thing over here. It is one life combined. Religious things and physical things come together. And what you also have to notice is Jesus just didn't make wine. He made really good wine. Not something named after a bird or comes in a box. But he made really, really good wine. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until 
now. So you see, Jesus does this miracle in secret. You know, only those servants who are pointed out knew, just like the wise men come to secret to see Jesus as, as a baby or an infant. And just like in the temple, Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of his teaching. He doesn't make a big show. He just kind of does it and then lets it go on. And most people bring out, you know, the good stuff first. And by day four, when people can't walk or spell or even speak English anymore, that's when you give them the garbage. They can't really tell anyway. But this guy says, you have kept the good wine until now. And so some people will say, well, this isn't wine. This is grape juice. The the purest and best wine was grape juice. These are the same people who will say, interpret the Bible literally on everything. Like, really? Okay, so when the Bible says wine, it doesn't mean wine. What does it mean? Darth Vader? What does it mean? This means wine. There are actually Greek words for grape juice. This is not it. This is why in Isaiah, the first verse that we started off when I had you guys stand, it speaks of the great homecoming of God, where he serves choice wine and, and choice meat. God apparently loves the Atkins diet. You know, he, he's not, it, it is a low view of Scripture and twisting of God's word to claim that this is not wine. Everything God made is good. It depends on how we use it. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus comes into this wedding. And the purpose behind the story, I think, is multiple multiple in this. First off, you see his love and care of this young couple getting married. He wants to protect them. But this is also the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it connects itself with how God starts creation. It's showing the redemption of it and the culmination because this is what happens. Verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So what was the point of that? And his disciples believed in him. Epiphany. The light went on. They got it. They understood. Understood. Why? Because it's not so much about the wine, it's about what Jesus is doing. See, the first three miracles in the book of John, they are directly related to the three major gods of Asia Minor, where John is writing his gospel to. You have Dionysus, who is the god who turns water into wine. Asclepius is the god of healing. Demeter is the goddess of bread and grains. So how does John begin his story? Jesus turns water into wine, he heals, and he feeds 5,000 people. John has an agenda. He's saying, your gods are not real. Jesus has come in the flesh, and he has done these things, and he has proven to you that he is God over all. This is the natural outcropping of Christmas. Jesus is the one true God, and he is coming to us in the world. He's redeeming culture. He's redeeming mankind. It It is not saying you all should drink wine or you all shouldn't drink wine. What it's showing you is that the Hebrew prophets spoke of wine, not only of God's new world, but of the blessing of God. And Jesus comes and he reveals himself as the one who brings that true blessing of God. And the disciples had the epiphany and the disciples got it. They understood. See, Jesus, his life is really ironic. He is, you know, he's born of a virgin, comes from a hick town. He's got his freaky cousin who eats bugs and honey all day long. And yet these wise men come and they bow down and worship Jesus. At age 12, he teaches in his dad's house in the temple. And here he takes something religious, the water, and makes it showing you it's spiritual. And the wine is spiritual. And your life is meant to all be integrated together. It shows you that God is about revealing and redeeming, that God brings life and joy and hope and blessing, that God brings these things. And if in your life you can't have joy and fun and not sin, you're never going to understand God. God throws the first party in the scriptures. It tells you God is going to throw the last one as well. When God creates man and woman and does this wedding where he brings them together, it's this first party and it's at a wedding. Where does Jesus do his first miracle? At a wedding. And he keeps the party going by bringing the best gift. 
See, this is epiphany, that Jesus shows forth himself because we are lost. Sometimes we think that being spiritual and religious is you've got to be really somber and you've got to be quiet. I will tell you, we would never recognize Jesus without his own self-revelation. We would never recognize him at all. You see, without Jesus, the truth is that our joy always ends. The party always runs out of wine. And yet Jesus takes the mundane things, which is us which is you and me, and he remakes us into something completely new. This is the heart of what the gospel is, that we are a people who have run away from God. We have broken relationship with him and each other. And yet God sends Jesus in the fullness of time to be born of a woman. He lives his life. He dies. He is born again. That death pays for our sin. Everything that separated us from God and each other, Jesus pays for he rises from the grave to bring us to new life why so that we can live in new life again you know it doesn't do any good to have our sins forgiven we got to be raised to new life again this is the gospel jesus makes all things new including us he reveals himself as the god who saves us he reveals himself as the one who brings true joy and true hope and true peace that is who he is and this is what epiphany is about We're like, I get it. And we look at stories like this and we realize, do I think Jesus made 180 gallons of wine? You bet your butt I do. I totally think he did. But that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is showing what he came to do, restore life to our lives as the wine runs out, to restore the true blessing of God into our lives. And this is why the disciples got it. It's why they understood. This is what God has always been about rescuing and redeeming his people. God is about his glory as we should be, and he brings joy and rescues and redeems us. This is why we talk about communion every single week. This is why you break that cracker like Christ's body will eventually be broken in the scriptures, you know, for you and me. And we look back in that event and think, wow, Jesus died to pay for what separated me from God and from each other. You take the wine, you dip that cracker in the wine, it represents his blood that was shed for you and me. And Jesus rises from the grave, which brings us back into new life with God and each other again. It really is beautiful. And this is one of the reasons why this is one of the main events of Epiphany. Because they got it. Just like we're people like, oh, I get it. And once we realize the joy and the goodness and the grace of God, we begin to live in that as well. Our, our joy begins to overflow into everybody we come into contact because God has done amazing things. We are people, when we run on our own power and our own devices, we always run out. The wine always runs out. And yet Jesus comes and he makes more, more than we can ever imagine. More than we know what to do with. And he offers it to us as the best wine we have ever known. Because his joy is the best thing we have ever known. That's why we live and walk in it. Uh, The band's going to come up. As I do, we invite you to take communion to be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you've lived a spiritual life that's all somber and you're trying to split all these things out in your life between you know, different stuff. I'll tell you, you don't need to. You don't need to. God wants our lives to be an integrated whole. If you were to talk to someone in Jewish culture about like a, like a spiritual life and you're the rest of your life, they wouldn't know what you're talking about because they didn't have a word for spiritual because they just assumed it was your life integrated whole together and this is how jesus taught and when he talks about uh, he gives this parable the inside and the outside of the cup what he's saying is there's not supposed to be an inside and an outside he's saying is that you're meant to be an integrated whole 
spiritual, physical, the blessing of God flowing in and through you to other people. That's the epiphany of God when we begin to understand it. We live in the joy that he has given, and we give that out to others around us. And if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you about that. Uh, there's offering boxes inside the wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is part of our worship, so you have the opportunity. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God is doing in your heart. And then there's cookies and stuff in the back. I know this because my wife picked them up for today. She told me to take them, and I thought it was very cruel <laughs> because I had to smell them as I drove down here, and I can't eat them. So I'm a little more irritated than I normally am, but grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, and start to talk, grab, grab some of the, the questions, and maybe go a little bit deeper on that and talk through those, understand the joy and the grace and the goodness of who Jesus is by talking about it and going deeper in it. Guys, our God is good. Our God is good. And he restores joy and hope and goodness to us, and we should be a people who live in that joy, understanding that when we live in our own strength, it runs out. It runs out. But on his strength, it is overflowing, and it is the best joy that we can ever experience even in the worst times in our lives his joy overflows because he is good let's pray father thank you so much for being a god who loves us and has sought us and has bought us and has shown us so many things and today i ask that you would have the light go on in our minds and our hearts and our souls and we would begin to get it we would see the overabundance of what you have done. And we would know not just the goodness of your love, but the fullness of your joy. And that we would live in that joy in such a way that the entire world around us would know that you are the one who is overflowing in our hearts and in our lives. Father, for those in this room today who don't know you, whose lives have never been surrendered into your hands. I ask that you enable them to see all the places the wine runs out and that you would be the God who saves them and fills them back up. For those of us who do follow you and love you, I ask that you teach us what it means, how we, get to, how we can stop trying to make our own wine and trust you to fill us with your joy and your blessing that our lives be lived in honor of the only true and good God that there is. And our lives be about your glory and your goodness and your grace. And all that we do would reflect that. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.